and welcome to this episode of the 21st Folio. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about two Thomas Ostermeyer productions of Shakespeare. One is Hamlet and the other is Richard III, and they're both from the Schaubühne Berlin. Noemi's going to pronounce it correctly so that I'm not the only version you've heard of this. But anyway, so for on this episode, we've got two guests, Noemi Berkowitz. Hi, I'm Noemi Berkowitz. I am an actor and director who's based in Berlin. And Mariangela Rowe. Hi, I am the editor-at-large of 7th Row, and I'm based in Toronto. And I'm Alexini. I'm the editor-in-chief at 7th Row and also in Toronto. Bestes, dessen Trauer solch ein Gewicht hat, der mit dem Ausdruck seines Kummers die Sterne in ihrer Bahn aufhält und sie zum Stehen bringt, wie schockierte Zeugen. So Noemi, maybe you can give us some background on the theater company since you are actually in Berlin and have actually been there. <laughs> yeah, so the Schaubühne is one of the major theaters in Berlin. It's an ensemble-based repertory theater like most of the theaters in Germany are. And so it has an ensemble of actors as well as sometimes guests for certain productions. And it has an artistic director, house directors, as well as guest directors who come and work there. Most productions in the German system, including both of the ones we're talking about today, premiere and then run for several years. However, they're not playing uh, eight shows a week type of run, like in the West End or on Broadway. Rather, they're playing maybe one to five times a month, depending on the month. And especially from the Schaubühne, they tend to tour a lot. The Schaubühne is one of the theaters in Berlin that tours internationally the most. And I saw them on tour. That's how I, I first saw Richard III in New York City when they were on the tour there um, in 2017. Yeah. So the two productions, let's see. So I think Hamlet premiered in 2008. And this recording is 2009 in France at the Avignon Festival. And um, Richard III, I think, is 2014. And the recording, I want to say, is 2015. So, yeah, we caught both of the the recordings of both of these productions that we watched are pretty early on in their runs. Mm -hmm. And I did see Hamlet last year, so about 10 years after it opened. Yeah, it's a lot of time for it to develop. And I saw it in 2017, so I think that's three years after it opened. And it's quite different from the 2015 recording. Or at least it's developed a lot. I don't know if different is the right word. So that's Richard III, and I've seen Hamlet, and so we can also speak a bit to the differences between the production live and the streaming version, as all the theaters are calling it, even though it's not a live stream. It's just a recording. (laughs) It's just a recording. It's a recording that they're giving you, like, six hours to watch, which is... German theaters do not understand what live stream means. It's like that Uh. one quote, like, you keep using that word. I do not think you know what it means. (laughs) That applies to every single theater in Germany. They're all calling their archival recordings live streams. Yep, and they're all all releasing a bunch right now. Well, I mean, the latter part is nice, but, like, 
look, at least with the Met, they give you almost 24 hours to watch an opera. It was like with these, Alex and I had to be like, okay, we're going to sit down. We're going to watch it right now. Because if the stream buffers, then it, we might run out of time, you know? Well, at least we're in a time zone when we're awake. When it's true. Very like, true. I wouldn't, if you're in Australia, I think you'd have to be up in the middle of the night. And they do, the Shelbun in particular co- collaborates a lot with Australia, so that was a choice. <laughs> we'll, we'll see in the upcoming years if that continues. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah, so I feel like we need to explain what these productions are, because they're German translations of Shakespeare, which I think have modernized language, though you would know more than I, because you speak the language. But then the subtitles are in English and are mostly just copying Shakespeare, with a few exceptions. Like, absolutely not. Everything is fine. Yeah. The greatest line in Hamlet. (laughs) I... I can say um, a lot about this. Okay. <laughs> I have notes about it. And I, the, when I saw Hamlet, both of these productions are consistently sold out in Berlin at the Schaubühne, and it's almost in- impossible to get tickets to them. And so when I saw Hamlet, I actually sat next to the one, woman rem- running subtitles uh, oh. because I knew her. And so I was sitting kind of um, actually sort of up in the grid, (laughs) looking down. I was in a very unusual position. And I spoke with her about the translation. Basically, one of the gifts of doing Shakespeare in other languages is that you can really adapt the language. And one of the most enjoyable things for me about these productions is the way in which it does sound so modern. Something I noticed, I'm fluent in German, but fancy, old, classic German, the equivalent of Shakespeare in English, like maybe reading Kleist, Schiller, Lessing, Goethe, those would take a little longer for me. They're going to be a little harder for me, just like to any average English speaker, the first time you're reading or listening to Shakespeare, or not even the first time, it's going to take a minute. It's going to be a little more complicated. That is not the case with either of these productions. Both of these productions, the language is totally accessible. Um, A lot of times where in the uh, translation, like an official German translation, it might be using the formal U um, or the royal sort of uh, addresses for people. Here people are just saying du, the informal U. And there's also a lot of fun things that they do with the language. In Richard III, there's this quote that Buckingham says, which in the subtitles in English, I believe, I mostly had them off, but sometimes I would check this. In the subtitles in English and in the original English, it says, as we well know, or as well we know, your tenderness of heart and gentle, kind, effeminate remorse. And the translation, I would say, approximately of what he said in German was, okay, we all know you're super tender and super compassionate. I mean, sometimes a little bit too much compassionate, like a little bit exaggeratedly (laughs) compassionate, tender heart. And it's super funny. And because that production of Richard III, I think, was also in France, 
no one in the audience is laughing because they're reading the <laughs> subtitles. Or was it in France or was it? Yeah, it was in France. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so yeah, I think it was in France because at one point Richard apologized to someone, I think, in the front row and said, je suis désolé or something. Probably because he, I don't remember exactly why. Anyway, the point is the way that they're using the language is very typical of German theater. And it, it is very much like, oh, yes, we're in this Shakespeare play in this situation. But then we're just kind of like, OK, you know, sometimes your heart is a little too like, really, it's that tender and sort of these fun asides to the audience. And that is completely lost in translation here. But yeah, so when I was watching Richard III, the recording, to me, it had a lot fewer asides and a lot less informal things going on compared to what I saw, but I'd wonder if that's just because it was in German, so I didn't understand what was happening. Whereas I think when they did this in New York City, generally when he went off book, it was mostly in English. Like, a lot of the asides were in English, and you would know the difference between the aside and the text, mostly because the text was in German. Can you share a bit about, like, what those asides were, what type of stuff was happening, or what he was saying, if you remember? Um, well, part of it was that, like, it was mostly improvised and responding to what was going on in the audience. So, for example, somebody came in late, and he said to that person, you missed the big speech. It's not like Hamlet with to be or not to be that's in the middle. This is, it's at the very beginning. You missed it. <laughs> Which is, of course ironic because the Hamlet production that Lars Eden yes, also stars in starts with the to be or not to be speech. Yes. I didn't know that at the time, but when I watched that, I was like, oh, that's funny. <laughs> um, yeah, and then I, he, like, he was just walking the aisles a lot in the audience, and I was sitting on an aisle, so like at one point, that production was very funny, and more so than I found in the the recording and I again I don't know how much of that is that I missed what they were doing in German and how much of it was like translated for English for me when I saw it in New York but I also noticed when I saw it in New York that I was laughing like crazy and a lot of the rest of the audience did not know what to make of what they were watching and like he definitely picked up on the fact that I was laughing at him the entire time and so anyway, at one point he came up to me and I was like, I was taking notes because I knew I was, because I basically got a ticket to it, which was sold out because I got press tickets. Um, so I'm writing in my notebook and he came over and was looking over my shoulder and started <laughs> looking at my notes. <laughs> and they all just say, oh my God, Lars Edinger, so hot right now. Oh my God, now he's naked. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Apparently I, on the other evening... Uh, <laughs> a lot of people share that opinion. So many people agree with you. I find, I don't know that I think he's handsome, but I find him so charismatic that, like, I find him attractive, even though I'm not sure that if you just showed me a picture, I would have been like, now there is a handsome guy. I, um, do not find him attractive and I think he's a really I mean I do think he's a talented actor but mm, well and and also like it, part of his talent is uh, just being 
absolutely disgusting on stage. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's the overriding impression I have um, when it comes to the attractiveness. I'm like, yeah. you're a talented actor. You're disgusting. <laughs> but I yeah. don't mean that in a mean way. If I had, if I want to say other mean things about him, then I would just talk about his campaign where he was. <laughs> posing with homeless people to sell an expensive bag oh right wait what about that but we don't need to talk about that if you guys don't want to. okay we he's can. got like as a human seems to be like very bizarre and extremely problematic whereas on stage he's not bizarre at all <laughs> <laughs> well like i used to follow him on instagram and i had to unfollow him because he had like 10,000 stories a day and I didn't understand 95% of it <laughs> and not because it was in German but because it was in Lars Eidinger and at some point I was like I just can't no <laughs> yeah but um that could be its own podcast and if it were I wouldn't be a guest on it so <laughs> maybe <That's true. laughs> yes so yeah. but I mean if you guys want to keep talking about his attractiveness or how often he's naked like that's totally fine with me I'm just not participating <laughs> Well, so well, he was naked a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Noemi and I had like a had like a brief chat about this earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and Noemi, you said that it's like nudity is relatively common in German theater, so this would not have been shocking to German audiences. But as yeah. a North American and a wasp, I was like, oh my, <laughs> a nude man. Um, nude men one. are very common in Germany on theater stages. <laughs> I have seen <laughs> many of them. I have worked on many plays with them. I have assistant directed plays with them. I have seen my colleagues naked. It is very common. I, and I remember when I saw Richard III in New York City, there were people who were saying who had seen it the, the night before that he had urinated on stage. And so I showed up and I was like, but he didn't hear it on stage. I missed the big show. I think I told you that, Noemi, and you were like, yeah, that's, uh, that happens. Yeah, I think oh that my God. used to be a thing that was, like, shocking for people. And now people be like, oh, yeah, wow, okay, you urinated on stage. Amazing. Not. <laughs> I guess it's still shocking in the U.S. Yes. <laughs> We're generally averse to other people's bodily fluids here. Yeah. Especially in this time of isolation. Yeah. Well, Well, what? yeah, watching him lick that sword in Hamlet took on new yeah. meaning in this time. Because mm-hmm. you're like, I mean, it's unsanitary and gross in the best of times. But when you see him doing that now, you're like, well, you're going to get coronavirus, Hamlet. <laughs> best thing for him, really. One thing you can really see with the detail of the close-up recording that you miss in the live performance is how much dirt is in his mouth. Actual At all times. Dirt. Yeah. Extremely unhygienic production. <laughs> yes. Um, um, so now that we're there, how do we begin to explain this production of Hamlet? Because I was trying to explain it to my partner and I was having some difficulty. Um, it's kind of set on mud um there's stage with scaffolding built and you have a frame with a sort of okay i thought this was going to sound a lot better um how do you describe the curtain yeah you have a curtain 
on which video can be projected, but it's also cut into it can several be rendered pieces. Translucent. Yeah. So it so as the frame moves back and forth on the scaffolding of the stage, it can go over various set pieces like the tables. And so, yeah, the aesthetic of this production, you have live action and you have things being filmed in real time and projected as well. Uh, how else would I describe the production? Um, it, well, it's modern day, obviously. Well, maybe not obviously. Modern dress. Modern dress. Yeah, kind of um, like trashy. You have shitty food on the banquet table and um, a lot of beer drinking. You have Ophelia and Gertrude played by the same actress um, with a wig being and, and sunglasses being used to differentiate Gertrude. And it's yeah, a very I, small cast, right? There are like six, people, six people in it. Yeah. Although I recently watched a production from the Münchner Kammerspiele, which is a major German theater in Munich, of Hamlet, which they were live streaming, once again, <laughs> a recording. And that one was only three people. So. Whoa. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I saw a 12. Did they have people switching wigs mid-scene? They had all of the three people also played all of the characters. They didn't have wigs, really. Oh, no, there was like one wig at one point. I think. I think when the older gentleman played Gertrude, he wore a wig. That production was amazing. I loved it. Anyway, I, so... I saw a Twelfth Night with six people and in San Francisco from, uh, from Cal Shakes. It was like their mobile unit that they bring to prisons. Um, and the twins were played by the same person, which is fine for 95% of the show, except when they meet. and then she had like the woman who was playing the two she had like a jacket that she would like put in one arm and then the other jacket that she would put in like the other arm and then at some point they meet each other and she hugged herself (laughs) it was like pretty yeah it worked like that part was a little bit cheesy but the rest the rest worked but I think this production it's like for the most part the doubling is pretty seamless Mm-hmm. And even the Gertrude and uh, Ophelia like works surprisingly well. Um, we should say that I mean, if it's not immediately clear, this Hamlet leans really, really leans into the incest vibes. <laughs> Doesn't so much lean into them as make them text. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking that the other thing that defines this production is the fact that it has this very, very long prologue with no dialogue mm. which is them burying oh, hamlet senior at the beginning and mm-hmm. then that the reason that the stage is covered in dirt is because we literally see them cover hamlet's cough hamlet senior's coffin with dirt and then that grave ends up on the stage throughout and it's like a seven or eight minute prologue so then when we see them at their banquet for the wedding, like you really, it does actually feel like they're literally eating the funeral meats. That's true. I've got to say also, I thought the sound design was incredible. Yes. Um, in both. You have, in all of these long scenes, you have such a buildup of, of tension, of mood, of atmosphere, and it's all created. Not all. There's also great light work, but amazing mm. sound design. 
Yeah, and like a really good modern score. I don't even know how to describe it. Yeah. It's like kind of a rock score, maybe? Yeah, I guess so. Um, and then like the text is significantly pared down is the other thing. Yeah. And in German, much simpler and more modern. And there is a lot of um, like fun uh, jokes with words that uh, that you don't have in, in the English. And you don't see in the translations because the translations are original English Shakespeare instead of reverse translations of the German translation and adaptation. Which is what I had honestly hoped for. Um, a, I mean, I, I realize that a retranslation is a lot of work, but it gives a better flavor of what the actual audience is seeing. Yeah. Um, it doesn't matter if it's a lot of work because all of the ones that aren't, that don't need a retranslation, every single show at these theaters is being translated into English anyway and has English subtitles. At the Shalbuna, they also sometimes do French. So they have people who would be translating it anyway, so it's not that much more work, and there are people who are paid to do it, so they could do it, but it's a choice that they make, and, um, yeah. I don't know who's responsible for that choice, right? Like, I don't know if it's, in this case, if it's Ostermeyer, I don't know if it's the dramaturgs, um, that I'm not aware of. I had such high hopes for this Hamlet, hopes which were subsequently, uh, ratcheted down a little, after the prologue, because the prologue was so fantastic. Mm-hmm. Or I thought anyway. Yeah, um, I agree. It had this, it, it sets it sets the tone for the whole production. It shows each of the characters at Hamlet Sr.'s gravesite. And it shows them burying Hamlet Sr. Gertrude is this stunning blonde who's on the arm of a man that we later learn to be Polonius. Claudius is almost an afterthought to one side. This is the whole funeral is very much Gertrude's show. Hamlet's off in the corner. He doesn't even have an umbrella when it starts raining. <laughs> Which is um, just a and big sprinkler hose situation, actually. Yes. Uh, and which is like held by one of the parties in the scene. And so it's sort of unclear whether this is being staged as a photo op. And there's this horrible, horrible black farce pantomime of the gravedigger trying to get Hamlet Sr.'s grave. Hamlet Sr.'s corpse into the grave. And it really sets the tone for the production because there, it's this sort of yakety-sack slapstick routine at the front of the stage while Hamlet is watching his father get buried. And they don't do the gravedigger scene in the last act, so I think this was their... They moved it to the... They effectively moved it to the front, took out the dialogue, and made it a black comedy slapstick routine. And I will say that I think that the scene, while it is... Uh, I, I, I think it's both Hamlet Sr.'s funeral and the final funeral of Ophelia. Like, for me, that scene is both of those things. Um, also, because it's pretty common in German theater for Shakespeare or other classics to be cut up and reorganized. We have the to be or not to be speech at the beginning here. And so for me, that's just my interpretation of this scene, that it sort of serves the function of both of those. That it, For me, I see it and I see both of those funerals. That makes sense. It just hadn't occurred to me. I don't, it's not anything right or wrong. Someone could see it and only see one. Someone could see both. Um, that's just how I saw it personally. 
the thing I really like about the prologue is that it really sets up all the characters' relationships without any dialogue, and honestly much better than a lot of opening scenes with dialogue do here. Like, especially if you know the text, you just watch and you're like, okay, that's Gertrude, that's Claudius, that's Polonius. Like, you pretty much know who everyone is just from how that scene is directed. And if you don't know the text, you can you can at least generally figure out the relationships I think although I don't know because I know the text but <laughs> it just seemed like I knew who all of them were before any of them were introduced I knew oh that's Polonius that's etc I was just gonna say that I think m- most people uh, most theater audiences are gonna know the story of Hamlet and productions like this rely upon that and they are not interested in doing another production of Hamlet and so I think that's something where they can say if we cut a bunch of this stuff people are still gonna know and so we can put our we can heavily focus on our own interpretation well I wonder if that's why they use these subtitles in English as just to direct Shakespeare so that if you speak English and German you can then see the comparison like that's like like you're like you're reading the score almost for uh for an orchestra where it's like okay so that's what it was originally and this is what they've changed it to and then you can kind of do that direct comparison which obviously you can't do if you are not multilingual including german i'd be curious to see what the french translations look like i wonder if they translate from the german or if they translate from the english that I don't know. I could find out, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's a lot to look at, to be trying to look at the production, listen in German, and also compare to the English yeah. subtitles. <laughs> but, um, yeah. The other thing I wanted to say is, jumping off of what you said earlier, uh, Noemi, you talked about how everything is kind of cheap. Like, there's there's beer drinking, the food is crap at the wedding, it's served on paper plates, they're at this, you know, people are eating with their fingers. And it's like the whole tone of the production is that first scene is the only time anything classy happens in this whole production. (laughs) Everything else is portrayed as incredibly cheap and tawdry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That funeral, everybody looks sort of semi-respectable. They're all in their, you know, morning suits. And then Gertrude stands at the front of the stage, frozen-faced, uh, almost collapses onto Polonius's arm at one point, but looks very elegant and put together. And then you see this awful slapstick routine in front of all of these people who are staring, standing motionless. And then Claudius falls down in, in front of Hamlet, basically takes a pratfall, and nobody helps him up. And this is our segue into the rest of the production, where everything gets as cheap and trashy as possible. Like, Gertrude is wearing a white, sort of like a tight white pantsuit situation and doing like a veils dance at her own wedding while Claudius is ignoring her in favor of the food. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, They really took the something is rotten in the state of Denmark as their entire guiding aesthetic. Yeah. True. Well, and it's, I think one of the things that I really got out of this production was how much it has inspired other productions. Um, Mm. Like, I saw this really great production of Hamlet at Cal Shakes in um, in um, the East Bay of the Bay Area. And that was, like, it was set on a swimming, like, 
the stage had a swimming pool in it, basically like an empty swimming pool that was full of detritus. Mm-hmm. It occurred to me that that was kind of potentially borrowed from this production, though I would not have known that back then. So one of the things that I did want to ask about is you can do all of Hamlet without doing any cuts, but it's unwieldy and like kind of bad, honestly. Yeah, um, you get Kenneth Branagh's film, which no one wants to see. Yeah, yeah. Well, everybody has to see it once so that you never have to do it again. Doesn't mean you um, want to see it, though. <laughs> that's that's fair. But one of the things that Alex, you and I talked about when we went to see that wonderful Hamlet at Stratford a couple of years ago that cut Hamlet into a family drama mm. is like what kinds of choices about what story they're choosing to tell the cuts give us. Oh, I should say and... that that... Sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to say that that production of Hamlet that we saw, is it's been recorded and you can actually watch it online. In Canada, oh, you really? can watch it free on CBC Gem and in the rest of the world. I think it's on Digital Theater, has it? You can rent it on there. Oh, well, then we should watch it again. It was good. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I mean, mostly I wanted to... They cut a lot from this production and not just stuff, not just stuff where you expect to be able to get away with those cuts because the audience knows the plot. It's like they cut the entire Fortinbras subplot, right? They cut all of the stuff about Fortinbras. Um, Don't they they, mention him at the very, very, very end? Maybe, do they? I don't remember. I thought at the very end they were like, oh yeah, Fortinbras is coming. And I was like, oh, news to me. You never mentioned him before. But I don't. Who's I think it's kind of. I think it's kind of fine. <laughs> but I've seen that done in other productions. No, 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 I'm not saying that that's like a bad thing. Yeah. I'm just yeah. saying that like, what are the cuts telling us about the the kind of story they're choosing to tell here? Because this isn't really a political drama, the way some Hamlets are. No, this is an experience. This is about rock and roll and blood and dirt and. Not having sophomoric theater projects by university students. It's it's yeah, and it's um, it's not yeah. It's funny. It's supposed to be funny. It was a lot funnier when I saw it a year ago. There's a lot of bits that have been developed a lot more. Um, it's about playing. It's just about having fun on stage and really playing, like Hamlet playing the madness is so <laughs> big right he's um <laughs> making weird noises he's and and he's saying ficking all the time fuck and spitting like it's super super clear like they're playing it is just it's it's playful and disgusting and 100% committed and it's happening something is happening it's not boring you're not just watching a boring play on the other side of the fourth wall his Hamlet is particularly misogynistic. Yes. Yes. So, like, when they had Gertrude and Ophelia played by the same actor, at first I was a little bit suspicious of that choice because it suggests, like, leaning into the incest vibes in a way that I find a little pat and a little annoying. Ultimately, I think it worked because it does a really good job of, of, of sort of dramatizing the Madonna whore complex that Hamlet has going on. And his, his, like, terror of female sexuality. But how... Noemi, you had some thoughts on this in the context of the scenes between 
Hamlet and Ophelia. How much do we think this play is lampshading Hamlet's misogyny and how much is it participating in it? I think it's participating quite a bit and I don't know why. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, like all of the things I said about how they're playing and they're getting into it and it's not boring and all of that. I love that. That's the reason that I moved to Germany because I think the theater here is so exciting. You can do all of that and still not have sexual assault happen in front of my eyes. Mm-hmm. And um, and I just really, uh, whew, you know, Hamlet is, is assaulting Ophelia on the grave of his father, covering her in dirt and spitting on her, mm-hmm. grabbing her. It's... Pulling her clothes off. And the camera leers at her body in a way that's really uncomfortable. Yeah, and I don't know who did the direction of the the recording, but because obviously that's not happening on stage. But I don't understand why that's necessary. So much of this Hamlet feels exciting because it's doing something in a new way. And this is not new. Mm -hmm. It is not telling me anything new. It is reproducing assault to a much bigger, like, a much greater degree than has happened in other productions, and I just don't know why. I also think that if you want to show physical altercation, it can be more about power and less rapey. Yeah. Uh, Mm -hmm. And and it just, it wasn't here. It was pretty rapey. And... uh, even later when Laertes was hugging his dead sister, he, like, put oh, his yeah. whole entire body on top of hers. That was so and, creepy. Yeah, and, they lean into the incest vibes in every potential way. Yeah, and, like, fine, whatever. I'm not, you know, because I think I like this production more than you guys, which could also have to do with the fact that I've seen it live. Mm. But that does nothing for me. And I don't know why it would do anything for anyone. It doesn't do anything for the play. And it doesn't bring us any farther. And sure, anyone listening to this can say that I'm just a boring old feminist. But, like, you know, I I just, I don't get what it's adding. Um, No, I totally agree with you. And I think something that watching these two productions back-to-back really brought out for me is they're both pretty misogynistic takes. And productions have a weird relationship to misogyny because I I think they both are participating in the misogyny and yet and part of that too is the fact that there's one woman there's only one female actor in both uh no in in Richard III there's a couple of ladies I think there's two yeah but in Hamlet there's only one female actor and when she's Gertrude the production is judging her so harshly. Who's the second in Richard the Third? Richard- There's the woman playing Lady Anne. Oh right, okay, yeah, yeah. Who only appears in like two scenes because uh, they, which I thought was like a weird choice for her character, but that's fine. Um, and Elizabeth, because the other yeah. thing is that though the women in those productions are really really strong. Those actors, mm-hmm. I think, are really strong, yes. and. In some ways, they're the most interesting part of that, of the production. And I don't, so I'm a little bit puzzled, like, is that, are they so good in part because 
Thomas Ostermeyer is actually interested in developing the women, despite the fact that no, <laughs> Noemi's giving me this look. Noemi's uh, like, nope. <laughs> or is it just that they're sort of transcending his misogynistic tendencies? Or is it just that Lars Seidinger is misogynistic, and so that's how what happens in his improvisations? I could see that. Um, or is it also like Ostermeyer's? I don't know. It's it's a bit confusing to me what's going on like there's obviously a woman problem but i don't know how to diagnose it i don't know if that you know you can say i think it probably comes from a lot of factors but at the end of the day you're doing both of these plays centered around the star actor of the shabuna ensemble Lars, and he is i don't know 80 percent of both plays honestly, um, if not 100%. Um, and oh. it's, they're directed by, um, by Thomas Ostermeyer, who's a man who's the artistic director of the Schaubühne, which is also a theater where plays are primarily directed by men, overwhelmingly. If you just present all of those facts, which yeah. are just facts, and then I see a scene, like the scenes that I saw, then, mm-hmm. um, then I don't understand why I would give the benefit of the doubt that this is yeah. being done mm-hmm. in a nuanced way. I oh, no, think, I don't think it is. Yeah, and I, and I think, and I don't think that, like, I think, um, I need to look up the name of the female actress in Hamlet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind mm-hmm. of sad that I don't know that, um, you know, because everyone's just talking about him, but I will look it up. And anyway, um, she's incredible. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, the women who are in Richard III are incredible as well. And why not showcase more of your talented female actresses then? Mm-hmm. Or, and also, why not let them play male roles? Like, yes. in Richard III, there's this... I mean, he's a very good Margaret, but why did they cast... Mm-hmm. The best Margaret I've ever seen, actually. <laughs> Except maybe Vanessa Redgrave, and that's like a maybe. Margaret is usually a dumb character. Yeah, well, I think that's partly how the scene is... I think it's directed very well, that scene. Um, True. It's the best use of Margaret I've ever seen, let me put it that way. Yeah, that's fair. But it is, like, kind of striking when you're like, you have other... Like, you have what... Like, what's Lady Anne doing? Yeah. For most of the play, she's just... She's there for literally two scenes in the play. One, her big scene, which is such a big deal, and it's such a big scene for Richard's character as well. And then Mm -hmm. she just disappears. Yeah, she does. It's a wasted opportunity to do what the Ian McKellen Richard III did. Every Richard III suffers in comparison in in my books to the Ian McKellen Richard III, which is so superlative. But in in that Richard III, Lady Anne is, is present throughout the she's present in scenes with no dialogue and you still have a sense of her character and you still have a sense, you get a sense of Richard himself through how the two of them interact. And it is an opportunity that was wasted here. Yeah. Um, From what I'm seeing, it looks like the woman who played Lady Anne in Richard III is now the woman who plays... Gertrude and Ophelia in Hamlet, currently oh. in their repertoire, but I mm. don't think that she originally was in the premiere 12 years ago <laughs> and mm. in the recorded version, I'm pretty sure. Mm. So I'm still searching for her name. 
right? It wasn't the same one. No, different woman. Yeah. But, so that means, that makes sense. So that means the woman who I saw playing the roles a year ago was the one who plays Lady Anne, I believe. So, yeah, I don't, I don't really know why that was necessary. And I think that in some ways, both of these plays have kind of a women problem. There's a quote in the um, scene between Ophelia and Hamlet, the get thee to a nunnery scene, um, mm. where I believe, I just wrote down the quote, hast du sonst noch was zu menstruieren? Um, and I think it might be Hamlet asking Ophelia or it might be someone else. Um, some, some male character could also be speaking to another one and he's saying like, do you still have something that you're trying to think over or say? But he's using the word, the verb basically to menstruate on, um, which is like kind of funny. But then if you just put stuff like that in combination with all of it, it's kind of like, okay. Yeah, the gender stuff in these productions feels really regressive. Which is funny, because everything else doesn't, so why is that necessary? Yeah. Yeah. I gotta say, I thought it was pretty funny how this whole play is modern and all over the place and all sorts of insane stuff happening and a lot of dirt eating and video. And then at the end, the actors are like, yes, we have trained in fencing and we will do our fencing. Here is the fencing scene. I learned this in the Schauspielschule and I will also my Fechttraining benutzen. I'm just like, seriously? This is so, I mean, I don't care, but it, it's hilarious. It's ridiculous. <laughs> right? Yeah. When you put it that way, yep. It felt so ridiculous that they started fencing. I was like, seriously? Like, Hamlet was DJing earlier. He was like, part of people in the house. And now he's fencing? This DJ knows how to fence? I know a lot of DJs. They don't fence. I mean, I did think that they they were very good at stage fighting. I think that's maybe the best Hamlet's uh, fencing scene I've seen. But I agree that it is incongruous. I don't care because I think it's funny, but it's very, it's very funny. It's like, and it's like, okay, yes, this is the part where we are the actors who have learned this skill and we will show it off. <laughs> okay. Um, I also got to say a lot of the bits were funnier and longer in person. The play's probably a lot longer. 10 years later <laughs> from the recording <laughs> to when I saw it. Um, mm. Like there's this part where Hamlet's talking about if like a crab, you could go backwards yes. mm-hmm. to Polonius. And I don't even think that was a bit in the recording version. And I'm pretty sure I remember that being like a three minute long bit where uh, it was a year ago that I saw it, but either Hamlet himself or Hamlet is forcing Polonius to like, I think it's Hamlet himself who's, like, doing this whole, like, sort of miming of, like, life backwards. And it's super long, you know, and it's super funny and super well done. Really something you have to see in person, something that wasn't there 12 years ago and is happening now. Um, And so you miss that sort of stuff in both this recording and also in the beginning of most runs, I guess, of plays like this. I also think the DJing part was longer. The DJing part was pretty great. (laughs) It was pretty funny. I will say I really appreciate it when Ophelia being mad 
isn't just some like happy weird singing stuff like a lot mm -hmm. of productions like Ophelia's madness is her just being like what are the words I should know this but you know where she's she's singing and she's like doo -doo 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 -doo, and she's just like oh this is what being crazy looks like I'm just singing and I really appreciate that it wasn't like that in this production you know mm -hmm. she's kind of saying stuff she's just it's it's very different the actress is really great and um and then she even is like she drowns later or is maybe murdered later but she also has a scene where she's just in the background sort of pouring water on herself and um I don't know I think that stuff is well done and visually strong yeah I think one of the things I liked about the um Ophelia Gertrude doubling is the sense of sort of cycles like it's an interesting pairing with Hamlet and Claudius because now you're sort of seeing a similar kind of cycle with the women and that Hamlet sort of can't tell the difference between them in a way um, in how he interacts with them um, and then the fact that the stage is kind of a grave it sort of draws attention to this whole idea of you know death and re not reincarnation but like new versions of the same old thing. All the world's a grave. <laughs> you also have moments where the audience, because th there is this live camera, which, um, so you even have parts where the audience, for example, in your play within a play, The Mousetrap, the audience is being filmed, uh, partially, you know, um, he's, uh, panning the camera across the front rows of the audience and you have these ways in which that feels really different when you're seeing it live than when you're watching a recording not to mention you have video content which is being projected the majority of the play but in the recording you're not really knowing that because anytime you're on a close-up shot of the actual actor in the video then you miss the fact that in the stage production there is also a video can we just do a very basic, did we like this Hamlet? Did we not like this Hamlet? Why? One sentence elevator pitch review. Because I'm having a hard time pinning down where you guys fell on this. Do you, how about you start, M.A.? It started really, really strong. And then it lost me toward the middle of the play. And I did not like how the last scene, the, the final scene was handled. I, it didn't feel coherent to me. The, the, I loved the staging, like the set, the having the grave at the front of the stage at all times means it doesn't really matter that in many ways they cut, they dramatically cut down the role of the ghost because Hamlet senior is always there. Um, he's like, he's, he's, his grave is at the front of the stage. Everybody, everything that happens in this production is in the wake of that death. Um, but at times, at times, Hamlet's madness seemed less like a performance of Hamlet and more like a showcase for a showboating actor. Yeah. I didn't feel like I got a handle on what this Hamlet was doing or what he was about. And by the end of the play, I felt, especially with the role with their Gertrude, I was not sure how what direction the play wanted me to take in her, in viewing her character. It didn't feel coherent to me. 
Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything you said. Um, I think for me, I feel like there were a lot of really interesting production choices. And um, I can see how that's affected a lot of other performances. Sorry, our other productions I've seen, like even thinking about the Richard III that MAU and I saw at the Almeida with mm-hmm. um, Ray Fiennes, like in that the stage was sort of like made out of glass so you could sort of see the grave that he was going to eventually fall into at the end um, mm-hmm. throughout. And I would be shocked if that wasn't inspired by this. And even like this... Toronto director who is now working at Stratford, Ted Witzel. I've seen him do various classic theater productions just with pool noodles. And at first Mm -hmm. I thought he was just very strange. And now I think he just went to Berlin. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, sure, pool noodles are going to be my thing. My signature take on Shakespeare. Yeah. Um... I apparently that he like he did a Titus and I think there was there were a lot of pool noodles in it. Um, I didn't see that one. I've seen other stuff, but um, I hope there's a recording somewhere. No, because this was like student theater at U of T. Boo. Um. Anyway, (laughs) where was I going with this? Um. So I feel like there were a lot of interesting choices that made me think. Oh, that's an interesting idea. That's an interesting take on this particular part of this of of like of Hamlet but I'm not sure it all came together and there are a lot of things in it that are problematic um and maybe some of that is like 2008 choices that haven't aged well and some of it also it was not palatable back then like I uh, after we discuss this at some point I want to talk about the fat suit and what the hell mm-hmm yeah. Um, really leaning into a lot of broad stereotypes here. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Well, that's a, a <laughs> weird time to share that I think that I have a much more positive view of this production than either of you. <laughs> you know, to just jump on all of the, <laughs> to just jump off mm-hmm. of all the problematic stuff in it. Okay, basically my take is, first of all, that I'm way more used to this style of theater because I've been living in Germany for almost four years. Um, mm-hmm. So I know that the last times that we talked about productions, it was a while ago, and I've recently even been in London, and when I'm seeing plays that are, like, people are sitting and it's more realistic and we're examining the psychology of the characters or it's just... Or not even necessarily the psychology, but it's so much about the language and people in British accents doing things. Mm. And and honestly, I get pretty bored by a lot of that theater these days. Uh, because for me, it is way more exciting to see someone's take on a production of Hamlet, a total adaptation, than to watch just another Hamlet. And... That's what I appreciate here. I think that the way that they chose to rearrange things was interesting. I like the fact that I didn't necessarily have to know whose funeral it was at the beginning or that it could seem like two people's funerals. I personally really like a messy aesthetic. I thought the play was absolutely disgusting, and I don't say that in a negative way. For me, that's enjoyable. I think that 
the video aspects, the sound design, the dirt, the water, the blood, the beer, everything visually is really compelling. And I don't think that you're like seeing Hamlet. I think you're seeing Lars as Hamlet. And I do think that a lot of it is a one-man show and it's a lot about the relationship between him and the audience. And then that part has grown much more in the decade since this recording. Um, but I know that that's what I'm going in to see. You know, I'm not trying to see some faithful reproduction of Hamlet. I've seen a million Hamlets. I know exactly what happens and I don't need all of those parts and I don't care, you know, like what's cut. Um, so overall, I think that it's really visually compelling and there are some really interesting choices, but I do think that I just, I'm rolling my eyes hard at the misogyny and I don't know why it's there and why it's necessary. I don't know. I don't like think that, I don't think that it means that these people are telling me this is how things should be. Um, this is how, like, it's reproducing assault, but not in a way that is condoning it. Um, it's very clear to me that it's heightened and it's happening within this theater form where everything is ridiculous and absurd and crazy and they're really playing and the players are going into it. And I absolutely believe that a female actress is, like, totally fine with what's happening and I really don't think they're condoning it but I just don't know why it's necessary so that for me is definitely a con but other than um other than that and obviously we'll delve more into sort of the weird bat suit and body stuff um I don't know what they're trying to say there other than that though I think the production I love the modern language so much you know when at the beginning of the play within a play, The Mousetrap. They didn't translate this, I think, at all, maybe. But, you know, um, Hamlet's making jokes like, oh, es gibt kein Nacheinlass. It means, oh, there's no late seating, so, like, get in here, you know. And and it's just, it's fun, and it's modern, and it's alive, and it's atmospheric, and it's really creating a whole world in that room around me in a way that I've never seen before. And that's what I want to see from plays, especially if you're doing an adaptation of a classic that I've seen a hundred times. And I do think they accomplished that. I mean, you're none of what, I don't disagree with most of what, with the vast majority of what you've said, Noemi. I don't disagree um, with the vast majority of what you said either. Um, <laughs> like you're, you're totally right that this production design is amazing and immersive. Um, but as you were, just as you were talking about what you liked about the play, it really made me think about the production of Richard III, which I thought worked really well. Um, and all of those things that were virtues of this production of Hamlet were worked for me in Richard III and didn't work for me in Hamlet. So Hamlet in a fat suit, question mark. What's the deal? So my first thought was that it was designed to make Hamlet deliberately unattractive and to play into a lot of stereotypes because I mean just like as you were talking about earlier Noemi everything about this production is gross and designed to provoke some kind of visceral disgust reaction whether it's because these people are displaying a total lack of taste or whether it's because things in this production are literally disgusting like pouring wine and milk into a plastic bag which is wrapped around a person 
um, yeah, this production was like really very, very good about triggering my disgust reflex. And as we discussed at the beginning of this conversation, many people, including myself, find Lars Eidinger quite handsome. And it's possible that the fat suit was designed to play down that because they don't want this, you know, broody, semi-attractive Hamlet. They want this guy who's like, at least in that sense, in tune with the rest of the production. Um, and I thought it was kind of gross and playing into a lot of negative stereotypes that I didn't really like. Yeah, that's super fucked up. Um, I don't know if that's the point. Seems like it could be. And also, it also seems like uh, even if that's not what they intended, that's how things come across. So you have to be aware of that. And to imply that like fat people aren't attractive. Oh, this person's wearing a fat suit. Oh, this person's gross now. Um, this is very uninteresting to me and maybe there's some brilliant meanings behind it, but um, that I don't care because if this is how people are interpreting it, then I don't care if you think you had a different reason that's much better, which I don't think they probably did. Yeah. And also, I mean, he takes the fat suit off to play Gertrude in the dumb show. Yeah. Which... It's not clear to me, it's not clear to me whether we're supposed to see that as Hamlet. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think because, precisely because he removes the fat suit, you know? Well, that's the whole thing that, um, that I think, like, what we're seeing the whole time is, like, Lars as Hamlet. And I don't think that he's not Hamlet. Like, I guess that literally means that this Hamlet is choosing to wear a fat suit and choosing to take it off for that scene. If you're looking into a very, very literal thing. But I think that German theater breaks the fourth wall a lot. And I do think that it is supposed to be seen as Hamlet. Um, I, I mean, I know you, were, you felt that Lars Eidinger was kind of showboating. And I guess I agree with that. And I think part of, because I had seen Richard III before I saw Hamlet, because I saw Richard III live a couple years ago. When I saw his Hamlet, it felt more to me like, oh, okay, this is like your training ground for Richard III. Because I feel like that showboating works a lot better for Richard III, because Richard mm -hmm. is a sort He's of a showman. Um, He's a showboat. Like, yeah. that's his whole deal. So in that sense, the sort of meta thing is working with the like the casting with the text as with opposed text. to against it yeah and i will just say that the meta thing and the showboating um it's much more common in german theater in general and breaking the yeah. fourth wall and being meta and doing that is happening with most i don't know maybe that's an exaggeration but i'll just say it with most major roles mm. in most plays so uh, i can see how you guys see that it fits the text better but that's why it didn't bother me and mm. Mm, yeah, I think maybe it is the fact that I didn't get a real read on Hamlet as Hamlet. And mm -hmm. I, I felt more like what you said, Noemi, which is that it's Lars Eidinger as Hamlet. And I guess it makes more sense. Like, I guess I like the idea of Lars Eidinger as Richard III more than I like the idea of Lars Eidinger as Hamlet. If that makes sense. Richard the Third. Oh no. What should what, okay. what should we say about Richard the Third? Do you want to describe this production, Ma? 
It's a modern dress production in which Lars Eidinger plays Richard with a, with a significant hunchback that's accomplished by way of padding. Padding that he doesn't remove and which becomes quite obvious in several scenes. There's no attempt to make this a realistic or a, a sort of like a photorealistic disability. The staging has several levels. Most of the action takes place on the ground level, but there's an upper level sort of balcony situation where some of the characters can look literally look down on everybody else, <clears throat> Margaret. And the sound design is is really really good. There's this sort of this is going to make me sound like an old like a like a rock soundtrack. There's a there's someone doing live drumming. It's fantastic. What else is important about this production to to situate it for people who haven't had the opportunity to see it? Okay, so dangling from the middle of the stage is a mic and mm -hmm. Lars Eidinger as Richard III will is the only one who actually speaks into this mic and he grabs onto it and like will whisper into it so that he can kind of speak intimately to the audience from the stage. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's sort of our cue that he's speaking to us as an audience rather than speaking to everybody else in scene until the second half of the play when it appears to be when he appears to be speaking to us as an audience in a theater and also as a literal audience when he's a king and the the mic is kind of a complicated contraption because there's also a, a camera in there which i don't think we see him use until the second half i'm not sure okay. i think that might be true but sometimes it's hard to tell when you're yeah. watching a recording of a production, too. Yeah. That sounds pretty much right. Anyway. And the mic is attached with some kind of, like, trapeze wire, I guess, because he swings on that wire in the middle of the show and then ends up hung by it at the end. Yes. In what the most epic closing shot that is just completely amazing and <laughs> I will I just you know he's he's being pulled up he's sort of hung in the middle of the air and I'm just like okay leg. that's a it's it's a yes. mic drop it's not quite a mic <laughs> drop it's more like a mic being lifted it's but a mic it is lift. a mic drop it is beautiful it is the incredible perfect image for this play yeah. and I will say that closing image is a fucking gift. It mm -hmm. is so great. Mm -hmm. I hope we're allowed to say fuck on this podcast. Oh, yeah. Too late. We didn't Say know. whatever you want. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, so because I saw it live a few years after this was recorded, and in the version that I saw, there was a lot more of him walking up and down the aisles of the, the theater and talking to audience members in English. There was a lot of ad-libbing, although some of it, I realize now, I guess, was scripted because he also said the, like, the devil does not wear Prada um, was also a That line. line, I was like, guys, you were like a decade too late for this reference. Please move <laughs> on. Like, anyway. Oh, for sure. Oh, I feel like there are constantly outdated references, uh, but it's part of the charm. <laughs> and... I think for me, the biggest difference between what I, the production that, or I don't know what to call it, the version I saw, I guess, of this mm -hmm. production and the recording is there was a, a whole lot of audience interaction in the first half of the play. 
And then mm-hmm. as soon as Richard ascends to power, he starts ignoring us. Oh. Um, and I think that works really, really well because that's when we start judging him and we, we get off the, I don't care, Richard, you can do whatever you want train. Mm-hmm. And, and in some, in some ways, like just jumping off something you said earlier about Lars Eidinger and his performance of Hamlet, in some ways, his personal charisma works particularly well for Richard because mm. in the first half we're like, oh, this guy, he's great. He's really funny. I don't really care if he's a villain. And then as soon as he starts ignoring us, the audience, we, we turn on him the way everybody else does. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know? Yeah. I think that the combination of those two things makes it a kind of very cabaret-ish version of Richard III. Like, it really presents him as an MC, and then mm. and you really feel implicated in his murdering. <laughs> They're making interesting faces at me. I think the the other key thing is that the two princelings are puppets rather than people. Mhm. Which while effective was also a bit on the nose. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel like people, <laughs> anything that you guys say, I'm just like, I feel like that's really normal here. I've seen a lot of puppets. Oh, really? <laughs> a lot of blood. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of puppets, a lot of object work. I just feel <laughs> like by choosing to make the princelings puppets as opposed to having lots of puppets, say, it kind mm-hmm. of, like, that's that's the worst thing that Richard does is he kills children. Mm-hmm. And then now, yeah. because he, they're puppets, it sort of, it helps let him off the hook, I think, a little. Yeah, it, it diminishes the gravity of that of that horror. Yeah, but do you think that this is, like, a grave production? Like, I think it's really, um, like, I, I think, well, I'll be interested to hear. You said uh, at the very, very beginning that you thought it was very effective, and I said I wanted to hear what you think was effective. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, like what it affected, um, I guess, and and I guess for me, I I mean I'm not disagreeing. I'm just curious. Mm-hmm. But for me, I don't think that the point of this production at any point is to be like, oh, I feel the gravity of this situation. <laughs> so if if they would have all of a sudden like brought on like two small young child actors, which yeah yeah they would never do yeah. because they tour this production internationally. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um then and it would have been like really serious and I would have been like oh shit he's like really a bad guy for me it wouldn't have made sense with the tone of the rest of the production Mm -hmm. because I do think that he seduces us and is a villain but that it remains theatrical and it never at no point and I'm like oh well I'm like rooting for actual Hitler right now (laughs) like I never feel like it gets that like yeah serious real or grave like it's very much about the theatrical Mm -hmm. villain seduction yeah Mm -hmm. Which I wonder is maybe why this production works better for me than, than Hamlet does. Because he's sort of doing that in both. And I guess I feel like that's just Richard. So I think it works so well. Whereas in Hamlet, I kind of think it takes away. Maybe because I think of Hamlet as like a serious play. Whereas I think of Richard <laughs> as a... <laughs> I, was like, I just fun. watch him kill them. Yes. <laughs> well, okay. So going back to Hamlet for just a sec... Alex, you and I had the same English teacher in high school, and when Ms. Watson taught us Hamlet, I don't know if she did this in your class. No, because I didn't have her for Hamlet. Oh. 
that is that, like you missed out on some great impressions of characters. Um, <laughs> but Miss Watson was like she did like a pantomime of the various theatrical subtypes of Hamlet. There's the melancholy prince Hamlet. There's the sweet gentleman Hamlet, and there's also dirtbag teenage Hamlet. Seems mother, I know not seems. And this Hamlet was very dirtbag teenage Hamlet to me if you just moved him to his early 20s and, like, made him an aspiring director. Mm. Whereas Richard III is probably my favorite Shakespeare. It jockeys for position occasionally with Richard II, which is, like, a boutique choice, I know. <clears throat> but, like, this Richard felt very fresh to me. Sometimes in ways that I found uncomfortable as a fan of the play and as an unabashed Richard partisan, because the second half of this production of Richard III is really invested in making you revolted by all the things you used to love about Richard. He, he turns from a man who can strip himself naked to seduce Lady Anne, who can, who can literally say, like, take me for what I am, disability and all. Like, my, this form that everybody else thinks is monstrous is... I give it to you and, and you will want it by the end of this conversation. He turns from that into a man who wears a corset and underwear to try to disguise his hunchback. Mm. And don't think I wasn't at least a little bit bothered by the inherent misogyny in that image. Part, mm. of, what, part of the reaction that this is supposed to engender is oh my god, a man in a corset, how vile. You know, where you're like, come on, guys, this isn't the 1920s. But there's something very... Everything we have come to love about Richard is what is essential to Richard. And then as soon as he becomes king, he starts betraying all those aspects of himself. Mm. And I'd never seen Richard portrayed that way before. I'd only ever seen Richard portrayed as when he becomes king is when he feels free to be true who he truly is to everybody, mm. including us and including all the other characters. Hmm. So it's like a reversal. Is that precisely like he has that um, at the end of his, at the end of his um, interaction with Lady Anne, I can't remember the precise wording, but he says, since I am in favor of, with myself, as in now that Anne has approved of my naked form, mm. now that, ha now that Lady Anne has, been seduced by me, which he seems almost surprised by in this production, which I found kind of interesting, because it's quite a daring move if you don't think you're going to win. He says, you know, I'm going to go to Taylor's to fashion me some beautiful clothing for my form. Mm. And in every other Richard I've seen, that's a little bit sarcastic, right? That's a little bit a way of saying, since she thinks I'm a marvelous, handsome man, I'm going to do precisely what I've always done. Mm. Whereas in this production, literally, he goes from wearing t-shirts to wearing well-tailored suits mm -hmm. immediately after that interaction with Lady Anne. And Richard looks good in those well-tailored suits. And then we see another change as soon as he becomes king, which is he tries to straighten his back. Mm. And he tries to pull himself away from the person who we came to feel affection for because he was honest with us. And the person who seduced Lady Anne because he was honest with her in his own peculiar way. Hmm. 
It's interesting though because I feel like I just see the corset as something that is almost like a brace in the way mm. of straightening up. Mm -hmm. But I see it as another way of just being sort of like now he's sort of like forced into this role that once he got it, it's not actually what he wanted. He can't be as free mm -hmm. as he was before. Mm -hmm. But I don't think, maybe I've seen too many men in corsets, <laughs> but I, it doesn't come across to me as anything that's being presented as like, oh, because of that and because he's wearing a corset, it's vile or whatever. So that's but, really like, interesting. Look at the, like, look at the way he he moves, right? He doesn't look like a, he doesn't move like a man who's comfortable in this garment. Yeah, but I don't think it's, for me, it doesn't, it didn't, and I, I, I just, mm -hmm. maybe I saw it differently or didn't consider it. Mm -hmm. For me, that w didn't make me think that, um, that that is, it didn't come across as misogynistic. If anything, mm -hmm. it came across as showing how this garment that women are often forced to wear also, mm -hmm. like, forces people into a box, and it mm -hmm. didn't seem to me that the course it was connected with femininity or or women at all, but was connected with being strapped in by the expectations of society. Uh, but mm -hmm. I think I just saw it really differently. Mm -hmm. Now I'm like, maybe I was wrong. What? Especially because I generally see misogyny everywhere. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I kind of read it the way Noemi did, but I think <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't necessarily disagree with you, Emma. I guess just to me... Mm -hmm. Um, it was more related to disability than it was to gender. Um, mm -hmm. Well, okay. I don't think those things are cleanly extricable in this production of Richard. And this production of Richard actually draws some interesting elements out of the text that I hadn't really paid a lot of attention to before. Like the thing that Noemi was talking about earlier about how the Shakespeare describes rich in... In Buckingham's performative speech before the mayor of London, he describes Richard's tenderness as effeminate, literally effeminate. When, of course, we, the audience, know that Richard is anything but. And um, going back to what you said about the corset not striking you as feminine, Noemi, I, I see what you're saying about kingship being a stricture that was a something that was more restricting than liberating for Richard and something that was not what he wanted. But there are a lot of there are other ways to depict that. There's a sort of there's an almost medical back brace, right? Or there's like there in 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 the old nineteenth century, children who didn't have good posture were strapped to posture boards. So there's there's a lot of ways of yeah, it's totally weird. Um, there's a lot of ways of illustrating the same idea without going immediately for a garment that is so that is read as so inherently feminine as the corset. And that was a very like it was like that was a very feminine corset. I own a couple. That was like the ones I wear. Like and it was it was diving for this particular old fashioned kind of ooky idea of the grotesque as like a man wearing woman's, wearing traditionally women's clothing. Oh, isn't that grotesque? Well, not really. And the fact that that's the image that you seem to be really pushing for here, that you seem to be really pushing this, this strangely gendered idea makes me uncomfortable. Anyway. How do you read that in contrast with the fact that he strips down and we, like, see his manhood? Yeah! 
Okay, so I didn't mean. I know it's like really gross. Manhood, Alexandra. No, the faces that I were making had nothing to do with your phrasing and had everything to do with me having to see his penis. Oh yeah. Okay. All dick jokes aside, (laughs) as soon as he started taking his clothes off, I was like, interesting. Never seen this scene done this way. All right. Um, But it was actually, it was really effective. The scene between Richard and Lady Anne is incredibly challenging to stage because if you just read the text, it doesn't seem particularly persuasive, Mm -hmm. right? He's talking to this woman over the body of her husband. He murdered her husband. He murdered her father-in-law. She's grieving. And he, the guy who killed them, is like, I did it all for love of you. So you're going to marry me now? Like... This is not a good case. And so it, like, I've seen a lot of good productions of Richard that flub that scene because it's just really tough. Mm-hmm. It doesn't help the production very much. I thought this was really effective. Mm-hmm. I thought this was almost as effective as the Ian McKellen and Kristen Scott Thomas scene. Mm-hmm. Because he feels, he convincingly feigns vulnerability in a way that I've, I've never seen another Richard do. And it's not simply because he's nude, but it's partly because he's nude in the sense that in the first scene, in the, in the opening moments of the play, much is made of Richard's physical, how different he is physically from everybody else. Um, this production really leans into that in the opening scenes. Richard's dressed differently. He has this bizarre head brace, which never makes another appearance. He, like, his hunchback is particularly pronounced compared to all of these lithe young things cavorting in their underwear. And so for him to come before Lady Anne and show himself for the disability that everybody else judges him for is a moment of, it's a certain kind of frankness, even though he's lying to her. And that, like, that you could understand why someone would be utterly confounded and disarmed by that to the point of saying things that they might later regret. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, um, I agree. I think that yeah. I, I agree that it works for all those reasons. I guess I'm just wondering that like the fact that it pulls, makes him nude. So mm-hmm. there's no question of his that genitalia. Is a if that affects your reading of the corset. No, in fact, it makes me a little bit more annoyed. Like, it's a specific take on Richard, and not an unreasonable one, to show him as a man trying to get away from his his disability, right? To show him as a man who's been, had this deformity cast upon him, and who, as soon as he can, tries to get away from it once he's king. Don't love that. Can see where you get that in the text. But if you show him as very firmly male, very firmly a man, and in in a weird way, it isn't a sexual seduction of Lady Anne, right? It's not like the disgraced actor... There we go. It's not like the Kevin Spacey version of Richard III that he did at the Old Vic, where he and Lady Anne were literally rolling around on the floor together, which was very sexual and, frankly, didn't really carry off well. I agree that that scene was very, was effective. Um, but I, mm. I know that you just said that you want to give someone else room to talk, but I 
I guess when you say it was effective, if you've added that Richard III is one of your absolute favorite plays, then I assume you just mean it was like an effective production of this play? Or what was for you overall when you come away from this production for both of you? What did you feel like was effective or what did it create? What world did it create or what did it create in you? I'm going to talk about what the live production I saw because that was different. I think to me, it what what was really exciting about it was that was because he went off book and the the fact that it was in translation made that possible. Um, and it sort of meant that you never knew what Richard was going to do at any point in time. Um, mm -hmm. And it was very destabilizing and you it was very exciting and you just kind of were on the edge of your seat watching this Richard going, all right, what's he going to do next? And what's the next adventure going to be? I've seen so many Richard III's that sometimes you watch productions, especially if they're not particularly good and you're just sort of checking off in your head, okay, like... We killed Clarence. Okay, there goes mm -hmm. Hastings. Okay, and you mm -hmm. just kind of this like this was a really good Hastings though. Uh, yeah, it was. Um, but you're you're just sort of like checking off, and you're like, okay, I know where I am, and all right, he's gonna woo Lady Anne, and like like you just sort of know what's what's happening, and you're just waiting for them kind of to do the play, and you've got ideas. You know, there might be new ideas along the way, but there's a certain way where, I mean, yes, it's scripted, um, but this just sort of like a felt like a jolt of energy into, I mean, into a, a production that really benefits from that. For I mean, I I understand having talked to you about this at length that you know the fourth wall breaking is a very common thing in German theater, but I guess given that this is already a a play that does that, I thought that this was such a brilliant way of sort of making it modern and relevant was to add these ad-libs that it just felt very Richard to me. And I, I've heard a lot of people talk about how they find Lars Eidinger's performances like dangerous. And I'm not sure that I agree with that, but I did find it sort of like, I just didn't know what was going to, I felt like, oh, I don't know what's going to happen because they're going off book. And so mm. to what degree were they going to go off book? I didn't know. And that was kind of exciting. I, agree with you and I think that's probably why I liked Hamlet more than either of you because I saw it live and there was way more of that mm. and I think that these things benefit from that and that's a whole nother conversation about what it is to show a video recording of a piece of theater especially when it's this kind and when there is so much about improvisations with the audience and um, and I'm guessing that that's sort of exactly the reason why we're hearing this difference and why it's so starkly aligned with who's seen the live productions and who's not and why I preferred Hamlet and then also having preferred Hamlet and then watching Richard not live and I saw Hamlet live why I don't prefer it because it wasn't as surrounding around me and visceral although of course I could tell that I mean the set design was nice it wasn't as like, I really loved the dirt, um, and so this, you know, it was, it was fine, this, that was pretty boring, but that's fine, but the music was great, and mm -hmm. the mic was great, and the video recordings, and I would love to have seen a production where I was in the audience, and where there was more of that interaction, I think it would have really livened it up for me. Yeah, I, um, I totally agree, because when I was watching the recording, I was kind of like, 
This is a lot less fun than what I remember seeing. Like, I was laughing and having the time all my life when I saw it live. And part of that yeah. is also the, the cutting and the sort of the degree to which Lysa Ettinger has a huge amount of charisma. Like, you're just watching him, even when there's other stuff going on, and that feels very like Richard and then maybe you lose something of that in the recording of Hamlet because like I often felt like does this Hamlet production even care about Hamlet but like maybe if you see it live just the fact that he's on stage and you have the option to look at him changes things because I think not being able to see him all the time in Richard III in the recording you feel a little bit less like he's kind of your guide and your MC because Sometimes he's sort of off stage and he's not the center of attention. But like when you're watching it live, you have been conditioned for him to be the center of attention. Yeah, when you're watching Hamlet, you know he'll like he'll send he'll like send off Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and be like, I have to do a monologue now. Like you guys go, and mm-hmm. he's so much the puppet master. And that's the thing is though, I think he does a really, really, really similar thing in both of these plays. Yeah. And I saw one of them live first. And so for me, watching Richard III, I was like, okay, Laos is doing his thing. Yeah. Cool. It's fine. Whatever. Yeah, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with Margaret, but I'm like, oh, cool. She's being played by a dude. Great. Why? (laughs) There's so many amazing actresses in this ensemble. And then, you know, uh, sound design, amazing. Loved it. But then um, he does this rap uh richard from like tyler the creator and like of course he still says the n-word because this is germany and no one is woke about it and i just had to roll my eyes and i don't know um and so and then i was like okay visually this isn't that compelling for me it's not as compelling as Hamlet was visually, and I really, really like amazing aesthetics. Sound design it is, and Lars is doing his thing, and it's fine, whatever. Um, so I think that's the reason why I wasn't blown away. Some highlights for me, however, were what they did with the murderers in the tower. These people, I don't know how, like, how they translated it, but like those were actually like real people, like real characters. Like I was like, oh, I totally see these people. And I just feel like a lot of times in Shakespeare, you get these, like, tiny roles, and they just, like, fulfill their purpose and leave, like, murderers in Richard III or in the Scottish play or whatever. And here, I they were super fleshed-out characters, and I really enjoyed this scene with them. And and that was great. And I think a lot of, a lot of it in sort of cutting down the cast, they even... They stopped introducing new characters at some point. Instead of doubling certain characters, they just sort of had, like, for example, um, I don't know. They had, they didn't introduce, they just had, like, Ratcliffe be the guy at the end who comes when Richard orders. Normally he has, like, this new guy, like Tyrell, who he orders to kill, um, to kill whom? Remind me. Yeah, at the end he has someone new who he's ordering to kill someone. I'm so sorry that I'm blanking on which murder this is. And here they just have a character that we already know. And so that was one way in which they did it. They gave these, instead of introducing new characters unnecessarily, um, they used characters that they already had and stuff like that. And I did feel like 
some of these characters, smaller characters, like the murderers, were more fleshed out, and there were funny parts, and what I already mentioned about Buckingham and, like, the very specific language that they're using that's more informal and funnier. Uh, I really appreciated that. Oh, a really funny moment when Richard is pretending to be super religious and he's standing up on the balcony and someone calls him and then he looks up as if God were addressing him and then realizes that it's just the people down there. Super funny. And so I appreciate that and I'm sure there were even more of those hilarious moments in person and I would have appreciated that in person. But for me, watching it on the video, I was just like, I don't care. Like, this is not, I'm barely seeing anything new. So all of a sudden, what did I appreciate most about this Richard III? Like, the murderers. <laughs> and, like, these two murderers. Because I'm like, this is new and interesting, and I haven't seen this before. And the, and the rest, I don't know. Um, I had sort of seen it before in Hamlet. Yeah. Um, I think I, that's how I felt about Hamlet, is I was like, oh, I've seen this before in Richard III. Yeah. And so, you know, that's, yeah, that's, that's what it is. So for me, it was the murderers, funny moments, and the badass, amazing ending shot image, which were really, really great for me. Yeah, I think watching the two back to back also showed me like a lot of the directorial tricks, or not tricks, sorry, ticks, for better or for worse, like the fact that they both have this kind of big prologue scene one is the party and one is the grave and that they both leave some kind of mark on the stage whether that's the confetti or the or the dirt that there's you know kind of similar showboating from Lars Eidinger you know the the problems with women like they're just there's certain things that like that maybe seemed novel the first time for better or for worse. Like, I didn't... The the misogyny didn't tick me off as much in isolation with just Richard III, but then when you see it in both Richard III and Hamlet... Uh, yeah. And it's more violent in Hamlet, I think. Yeah. But yeah, so... Question for the group. Was this the same play, basically? <laughs> right? Like... I think that's the thing. At the end of the day, you know, let's do another one of these in 10 years when Lars is playing King Lear. And <laughs> same. Like, yeah. I think that what he does is good, successful, works really well, sells out internationally, and that's fine. But that combination, Eidinger Ostermeyer, it's going to be the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is kind of Maybe. stale in a way that you don't see that with other director-actor combinations where they're doing very different things with each But production. it's not, the way that it's not stale is when you're seeing it live. That's true. And he's responding to your audience. So it's stale if you watch a video of it, and that just proves why theater should be experienced live because I don't think it would be stale if you were sitting in the audience mm. for either of these. Because you don't know. It's what you were talking about. You don't really know what's going to happen. Like I said, the production, the recording we're watching of Hamlet is from 2008 or 2009. And I can tell you guys, having seen it in 2019, that there were way more bits and way more funny parts, slapstick moments, improvisations with the audience. And you just miss all of that. Mm. Oh, the yogurt on his face was like... <laughs> 
So gross. I don't know. I don't know what it actually was. I'm not um, sure. Somebody, I read one review that suggested it was mayonnaise, whether that's true or not. I thought it was like potato when I saw it live. Well, I, well, ugh, like mashed potato. I don't know. I don't know what it, I don't know what it is. Mashed theatrical potato with spirit gum. <laughs> I've got to say, um, you know how I mentioned earlier tonight that I love gross and disgusting? Mm. I do, but not that. I thought that, like, that was actually, I was like, oh my God, I don't want to look at you like, oh. Oh, I have a question for you, Noemi. Because apparently all this dirt is quite common. So what is the shower situation like backstage in German theaters? Okay, I've just got to say that, like, I haven't, I haven't checked out the showers at the Schaubühne, just at Gorky. We don't have enough showers, I've got to say. <laughs> like, no, for sure, after a lot of shows, actors will shower, and we do have showers backstage. And I would say in Gorky, we maybe have like three or four in total, which is fine. Except for the one time that we had an intense dance performance with 20 people touring from South Africa. And everyone is completely covered in sweat by the end of the show. And then we had like three showers. (laughs) But no, I mean, I've done a lot of plays where actors end up covered in like dirt and dirt and um, blood and stuff like that and yeah for sure you shower after the show <laughs> but do you have to shower in the middle of the show because I swear in some of Hamlet and Richard III those actors like Clarence gets completely covered in gunk right and then he comes back later oh no totally totally possible actually um, it's interesting because you have um, makeup artists like who are full-time employees at the theater Mm. and not only they will do the makeup before the show but in some slash a lot of shows you definitely have not just a costume quick change but you have whole makeup changes where getting the skunk on you or getting it off of you is happening Mm. in the middle of the show so yeah that is pretty common but not necessarily via shower just like alcohol wipes Depends how it depends how intense it is. Mm. I can't speak to this exact production, yeah. but there are definitely levels of gunk that could only be removed by shower. Yeah, and that could absolutely. I mean, the dressing rooms are usually, you know, they're right backstage. Like that, absolutely could happen in the middle of a show if it needed to, or under the stage or to the side of the stage if they need to set up a quick change shower situation, which I've seen. So, Ma, like what? How did you feel about, I mean, I guess it's just, I think Noemi and I are both sort of disappointed by the way this is recorded, given our experiences mm-hmm. with the live show. And so it's interesting to me that you, st- that you still really liked this production because you only ever saw it recorded. Yeah, I guess letting the best be the enemy of the good is sort of, it's fortunate that I haven't seen it live because I don't this doesn't feel like a letdown to me. But that's also because I'm like a big old Richard III fangirl. And the things that I really liked about this production are 
A genuinely compelling and charismatic Richard. Sure, but that's the sine qua non of a good Richard, right? That's necessary but not sufficient. The things that I really liked about this Richard were really good use of Margaret, which I've never seen before. Margaret is usually either cut as a character or comes across as kind of useless. And a really, really interesting Buckingham. But probably other people should talk about how they felt about this production first. Because I can talk about Buckingham at great length. Well, I feel like I said my piece about my general thoughts on this production. Mm -hmm. So... I, too, do not understand why they chose to have Margaret played by a man. Like, the actor was perfectly fine in the role, but it was, like, a capital C choice that stuck out to me, and it was a little disconcerting. Yeah, so when I saw it performed a couple years later, one of the things that was different was that Lars Eindiger came into the audience during Margaret's big speech, and he actually sat Mm. down next to someone, and he was kind Mm. of, like, pointing and laughing at Margaret. Like, can you believe this? Pretty yeah. much, yeah. And trying to get people to point and laugh with him. Um, mm. So when I saw it, I read Mar- The Choice to Make Margaret, played by a man. And this is another one of those problematic things, like a way of trying to make Margaret more ridiculous so that we saw Margaret more the way he did. I'm not sure that's what's going on in this rendition mm-hmm. of it. Yeah, I don't know that I agree with that, because this Margaret did not seem ridiculous. She seemed genuinely dignified, and she also seemed like a dire warning of everything to come, you know? She was like, look, everything's a cycle. You're at the apex. Just you wait, you know? I did feel this production did a very good job of making it clear what Margaret's purpose was and what her pronouncements were, and... Maybe partly because she was on high when everybody else was low and it was very clear who she was speaking to when and she kind of had one big scene and then she disappeared instead of sort of showing hanging around, hanging around like who the hell are you and why are you here? Yes. Um, and then it took time with each of the characters to say later to be like, oh, yeah, Margaret predicted this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was done well and I do appreciate that they can use their levels Mm. with having her above on this sort of balcony above everyone else. And I just unfortunately don't understand still why she was needed to be played by a man. Um, Mm -hmm. Not that there was anything wrong with him, but there's enough men. And yeah, I think that's another... Another thing, I'm like, oh, cool, you're saying the N-word. You're casting one of the very few female roles in as a male actor. Like, amazing. Mm. So new. So interesting. I think there, those were reasons I just kind of got over it pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. If this had been a gender-blind production, I would have cared a lot less about that. But What do you think of Elizabeth? Because I thought she was really great. Me too. And she had a much she had a much more substantial role in this production than in some I've seen, where she just gets to be, like, yet another victim of Richard. Mm. One of the things I really liked about this production is it does a very good job of establishing the factionalism in Edward's court and how unstable Edward's reign really is even yes. before he dies. Yeah, that scene where they're all where he forces them all to shake hands and mm-hmm. they do not want to do it. You really get the sense mm-hmm. of, like, this is, yeah, as you said, it's very unstable. 
And they're all yeah, a bunch of backstabbers, which is also another put throws Richard into a different light, I think. Yes, he's merely a product of his environment in many ways. He's hardly uniquely evil. He's just weirdly better at it. <laughs> yeah, it, it is also pretty funny when he's making everyone hug and yeah. forcing them and saying, you know, that they need to like, um arm and like, hug, embrace now, mm-hmm. commanding them to do it when people refuse and are reluctant. I don't know, funny. Mm. It also does a good job of giving us the Henry the Sixth context without having to see Henry the Sixth. Because usually when I see Richard the Third, it's sort of like, oh, okay, here's this villain and a bunch of people he's going to kill. And that's mm-hmm. kind of my context for it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I feel like it was much more nuanced, nuanced in this. Except for one thing, and this is the thing that like drives me nuts about a lot of Richard productions. And it only comes through if you've seen Henry the Sixth or if you make a point of playing it up, which is that Richard is a war hero. Like, part of the reason everyone is terrified of Richard is not just because he's disabled and therefore deformed and strange and grotesque. It's that he's the reason everybody's here. The reason Edward is on the throne is that Richard is really good at killing people. And, and like, that's, that's the part of his opening monologue. And now in this weak piping time of peace... My job is killing people. My job is fighting. Now I don't have a job. And you don't feel that... You don't feel that sense of menace from Richard from moment one. Which I think is really important to understanding why everybody is so weird about him. It's not just because Richard is disabled. It's because he's disabled and grotesque and they need him. Like, they can't do without him. They can't write him off as someone harmless. Right? They don't... They don't like him because they're prejudiced against him, but he's also the reason that all of them are here. He is the source of all of the security they enjoy, and none of them trust him. Yeah, oh yeah, we gotta talk about his fighting with thin air. Yes. Oh yes, of course. Okay, so basically, in the final scene, mm-hmm. um, you don't have other people. You have, the first time you hear, my horse, my horse, kingdom for a horse, or horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse, it's when he's sort of waking up from a dream but then it happens again in real life but everything happens alone you have this sort of one man battle scene where he's fighting with thin air mm-hmm. um, so this is a scene that we will discuss and also yeah. my horse my horse is for whatever reason in english oh yeah yeah uh because it's a famous line in English. I'm guessing that's why. It's just kind of bizarre. Pferd auf Deutsch. It's Pferd. It just, unless, you know, horse. It's kingdom Pferd. of horse. Pferd. It's just like, you know, it's like kind of a weird word to say. Yeah, it sounds very flat. Pferd. Not a lot of there. Ein Pferd. <laughs> mein Königreich für ein Pferd. Oh. I don't think it has the same ring to it. No, it doesn't. Oh, yeah, that's what I was going to say, is I loved Polonius speaking German. I had no idea what he was saying, but he seemed more Polonius to me in German. (laughs) That's so funny. (laughs) So what do we think about this battle with thin air? Uh, Generally super down for things like this. Unfortunately, I'm tainted because I have seen the best one-man battle scene ever at the Deutsches Theater, which is another major theater in Berlin. Mm-hmm. in a production of König Ubu, and it was 
so good. It's a gigantic battle scene only from one actor. Cool. And so I have been totally spoiled. So I'm super down, and I think that it's an interesting concept for him to do it alone. And I really like just the idea of him ending up totally alone, and this final image is absolutely amazing. Mm-hmm. Chef's kiss. But, but I have been slightly ruined because I have seen a better one. <laughs> Yeah, I kind of feel like I don't really know what the point of him fighting with thin air is. I like the idea of the way that he's alienated everybody by this point, to the point that now his final scene is alone, but that's kind of a very meta thing that I'm not sure that it's concluding the play itself in a way that totally works for me. I mean, I felt like it was it was making an interesting point about Richard, which is that his his in this interpretation, at least, his paranoia becomes his own worst enemy, right? He starts, he starts killing people and screwing around with people, um, not because they have betrayed him, but because they are insufficiently super loyal. This, oh, this was such an interesting Buckingham. I've never seen a youthful, handsome Buckingham contrasted with, or at least supposed to be contrasted with the you know hunchbacked derided by everyone Richard like in Margaret's speech when Margaret says when Margaret specifically points out Buckingham and is like look all of these other people have done so many awful things but you you're okay you're like the only one here who's never done an awful thing and then we see Buckingham almost volunteer to help Richard without Richard having to seduce him and Richard kind of looks at the audience and goes, okay, I guess I'm going to run with this, but I didn't see that one coming. And then Richard ultimately ultimately betrays the man who has helped him rise, not because he feels that Buckingham is disloyal, but because Buckingham is becomes insufficiently a yes man. Like the last scene where Richard is fighting thin air, you feel it's not like Richard has alienated the world. It's that like Richard is his own worst enemy. Yeah. Yeah, because it honestly feels ridiculous that he wouldn't play the game and -hmm. give Buckingham what he wants. It just feels like he Mm -hmm. becomes a petulant child who's Mm -hmm. spiting him for no reason. And it definitely leads to his downfall. And it's almost like he wants it. He's ready Mm -hmm. for his downfall and he's going to orchestrate it himself. Mm -hmm. Because it would not have been hard to just give him the damn castle. Give him the earldoms. Yeah. But I am not in the giving vein today. And in some Richards, you see this as Richard is a small and petty bully who likes to withhold things from people because it makes him feel powerful. And in some cases, you see this as, as in this production, exactly as you said, Richard is fundamentally self-defeating. Yeah. Yeah. But that's fun to watch. Yeah. Oh, Lars kisses a dude in as Richard Ratcliffe. Oh yeah, this is where I was like, please stop leaning into the homophobia. If I actually thought that you were portraying a an ambiguously heterosexual or at least non-heterosexual Richard, that would be one thing. But right now I feel like you're just doing this for shits and giggles or for shock value. Or to like eat this man's face in a disgusting way. Mm. Oh, it's so gross. 
Wow, all of the things that I like that were gross in Hamlet, I'm like, this is unacceptably gross. <laughs> <laughs> no, it turns out that it, I never, wow, yeah, it turns out that I never like forced like sexual assault scenes, whether they're to a woman or to a man. So I guess I'm really consistent. I didn't like that in either of these plays. Well, let's stop using sexual assault for shock value. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. Okay, I remember what I was going to say, which was just a brief discussion about Richard and his disability and mm. how we think that was portrayed. I think one of the things that I liked about it is that this is a very athletic Richard. Like, yes, he has mm. a hunch. Yes, he has, like, a bit of a limp sometimes, but it, it by no means slows him down. Impedes him. Yeah. And so this is one of the few Richards where I felt like, yeah, I can see you being in a battle and kicking ass. Because mm-hmm. just because you, you know, are a bunch back toad does not mean that you are not fully capable. Um, and that's something that I really liked. Um, and something that I noticed in the production, the staging when I saw it live a couple years later, was that Richard sort of takes every opportunity he can to sit down, which I felt was really realistic. And often what mm-hmm. he did is he sort of made people come to him. Um, which was kind of an interesting inversion of what Rupert Gould and Ray Fiennes did with Richard III, where Richard was kind of circling this stage always. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas with Lars Eidinger, he was like, no, I, I'm in pain. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to find mm-hmm. a way to make people come to me and find power in the fact that I'm sitting down. Mm-hmm. When, when plays really want when when portrayals of Richard III really want to engage with Richard's deformity quote-unquote how much are they also willing to engage with the reality of his disability this production seemed much more willing to engage with the reality of his physical circumstances than many would be I don't know what do you think about the braces and I guess I'm not sure how if like I mean, we were talking about the corset, but I guess I'm not sure how I feel about the corset in the context of how it's portraying disability pre-corset. That's something to be corrected? Yeah. Or... Yeah, because yeah. I guess I just didn't feel like there need. I didn't get the sense that it needs to be corrected in the first half. But, but on the other hand... A, I mean, this Richard is like a, such a fundamentally insecure man, right? Yeah. In a way that other Richards aren't. Yeah. And you do, there is like that progression of going from the t-shirt to the tux and so in a way it makes sense that if he's keeps trying to perfect his body that the next step is straightening his back no longer yes like i said i think that's just because he's in this role of the kingship that is structured in the way that none of his other roles have been yeah Mm -hmm. um and that's why he hates it and chooses to self-destruct within the context of this production Mm -hmm. no i'm i really like the idea of portraying these super super clear like yeah like black sort of braces that are very obviously theatrical and not real and not Mm -hmm. trying to you know I like saying that like okay we're putting this on we're not going to try to like craft a realistic looking I don't know humpback thing so that when he looks Mm -hmm. totally nude like you're like oh wow that's a realistic looking thing I really appreciate saying like no, this is theater. This is really mm-hmm. clear that I'm putting this on for this performance and mm-hmm. I'm not trying to pretend like I have a disability that I don't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. 
it, in a way it makes it more palatable if you get the the idea of casting an able-bodied actor mm-hmm. yeah exactly no one's pantomiming being a disabled person I wonder if he's one of the only Richards who like didn't throw at his back playing the role because you hear horrors every actor has a sto- who's played Richard the third has a story about how they ruined their back by playing Richard the third that is so dumb <laughs> man and they're like ah yes anything for the art it's my craft okay so that's the end of this episode of the 21st folio where can we find you noemi berkowitz hi you can find me on my website noemiberkowitz.com or on twitter at noemi ola and you can give me a job as an actor director or translator what do you translate German, Polish, English, and theater. You can find me at Labs Victorian on Twitter. And I'm Alex Heaney. You can find me on Twitter at BWestCineast. That's B-W-E-S-T-C-I-N-E-A-S-T-E. And you can also find me and often Mary Angela on the 7th Row mm-hmm. podcast where we talk about films. If you enjoyed the episode, we would really appreciate it if you would consider rating and re- rating and reviewing the podcast wherever you're listening to the podcast. And we'd love to hear your thoughts. So thanks for listening. <laughs>